Okay, good people, you are in for a treat today. If you don't know Wes Moore, you've probably been living under a rock for the last five years. My man has written two best-selling books, including his breakout work, The Other Wes Moore. He's an entrepreneur, TV personality, was the CEO of the Robin Hood Foundation, sits on the board of Under Armour here in Charm City, and now is candidate for governor of the great state of Maryland. Let's get into it with Wes Moore. Welcome to the remix. Wes, it's good to see you, my man. It's great to see you, man. Always, always. Thank you for you. It's been a long time. I, you know, it's been, uh, I, I remember when we first met with me, you, and uh, Fagan, right. and Mike Cryer at the, in the lobby of the Four Seasons. <laughs> uh, it feels like a lifetime ago. That's exactly right. right. That's exactly right, man. But you keep on, you keep on doing the work, man. And we're all appreciative. You know, I got a friend in New York. She says, you know, keep doing dope shit until somebody notices. So that's what I'm doing. <laughs> right. I like that. I like that. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, look, today I am uh, beyond honored to have my man, my friend, Wes Moore on. Wes Moore is a New York Times bestselling author, a TV and radio personality, producer, entrepreneur, CEO, retired com- combat army officer, among many other things, and a good friend. So, Wes, um, thanks for joining us, man. My I joy, really man. appreciate you. That's my joy. I appreciate you, man, and everything you do. Sincerely. You know, um, as I said, um, uh, I talked to your man, Martin Whitaker, last week from Just Capital, and he says hello. Um, and uh, before we get started, before you know, we sort of jump into the ideas about how we're going to remake capitalism, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about what made Westmore Westmore? Give us a little bit of your background, sort of where you came from and what you've been up to over the last few years and sort of how this all came about. Yeah, well, you know, and, and honestly, I think that, you know, uh, one of the things when I think about some of the biggest moments in my life, um, you know, there were moments actually where where the economy changed for my family. Um, and and I, and I say that because, you know, I, I watched my father die in front of me when I was almost four years old. And it, it was it was both what that meant, like the the idea, the visual um, watching him taking his final breaths. Yeah. Um, it's also about what it meant to my family, because then in that moment, my mom became a widow with three kids that she was going to raise on her own. And that was not the life that she had prepared for, expected or dreamed about. And so you saw how that singular moment changed everything for her and her own her own hopes and her own dreams for her future and how it changed the economic prospects. And then I fast forward about 10 years later, where about 10 years after that moment, my mother got the first job that she ever had that actually gave her benefits. That, that that let her work one job instead of multiple jobs, multiple part-time jobs that gave her predictable hours. This is a woman with a master's degree. Yep. And 10 years from the moment of my father dying to when she gets this job, I saw how the what happened in that moment at four changed everything. And I saw what happened 10 years later when she finally got a job that gave her basics of benefits changed everything. 
you see how how economics you see how work and the value of work didn't just change her perspective her connection it changed the perspective and connection for our entire family and so part of and so that was kind of the birth of for me of this idea of saying that this is how i want to devote my life right i want to devote my life to creating economic opportunity for people mm -hmm. it keeps me up at night when we look at the massive disparities that exist in our society and I'm just now coming off of, uh, you know, uh, of running the Robin Foundation, which is one of the yep. nation's largest poverty fighting organizations in this country. Because if we're not talking about economic empowerment for people, if we're not talking about, you know, economic, economic, economic ownership uh, for people, equity for people, then everything else we are doing is just simply cleaning up the debris that comes from broken systems. And so that's really where kind of like the birth of my interest in this came from. And also, I think my passion towards us getting it right, that's where it comes from. Yeah, man. You know, this is so, I mean, we, we jump right into it, right? Because when you talk about, you know, equity and cleaning up the debris, it, it, this is something I've been thinking about a long time. You know, this podcast is about the transformation of capitalism, right? We call it the remix because, you know, there's, it's the idea about taking what works and reimagining the rest, right? Whenever I talk about it, People, you know, think that I'm, you know, when I talk about conscious capitalism, stakeholder capitalism, they want to say I'm not a capitalist. Well, I'm a die in the wood, wool capitalist. But sometimes capitalists do stupid shit and get it wrong. That's right. Right. And that's the whole thing about, uh, you know, about, you know, what you found out with your mom. So it's so interesting to me how I was rereading re your bio a little bit this morning before we came on. And it's so interesting about how much of your story has impacted my mission in life, so that the sorts of things you talk about. So I'm sure that people get you on, they want to talk about the other West more. But when I think about, you know, sort of what you what you've been through and what you're doing, the first thing I think about is the work, right? This idea of purpose and passion in capitalism, right? That's what we're sort of how do you sort of bring uh, reimagine capitalism so that it benefits everybody, yes. right? And a lot of that is about purpose and passion, right? So the first thing when I'm thinking about you, one, I think about the work because, you know, my background in conscious capitalism. And then the next thing I think about is sort of the other West more because we talk about how there's opportunity everywhere. I mean, smart people everywhere, but opportunity is limited, right? And that's what we, that we're trying to solve, you know, in the work we do. And then, we get to five days, all right? And, you know, as you know, when I first saw the Conscious Venture Lab, uh, it was out in Columbia, Freddie Gray gets killed. I have a discussion with uh, Stephanie Rawlings-Blake, and I said, you know, these riots ain't about Freddie Gray. They're about exactly what you were just talking about, Wes. It's about underinvesting in minority communities for hundreds of years, and we got to solve that problem. So it's so interesting to me about when I look at, you know, your trajectory, the things you write about, the things you care about, how it's impacted, you know, my my mission. So talk to me a little bit about um, your, you know, let's tie those two things together. Your ideas about business and about capitalism, how they've been shaped by some of those experiences and what you think we need to do better. Yeah, I, I think in many ways they've been completely shaped by capitalism. Yeah. And, and, and one thing I think when people talk about, you know, what becomes the role of, of, of capitalism, here, here's the reality is that capitalism is a system that, uh, that has created uh, an extraordinary amount of, of, of opportunity for people and growth 
for people, right? Um, it has created prospects. It has created a measure of wealth. It is it is it is something that is uh you know has has had an extraordinary impact on on community and communities. Um, it's also impossible to understand the growth of capitalism without also understanding the growth of inequity and inequality. But the thing about capitalism as, you know, there's a difference between capitalism as constructed and the, and the idea that we don't have to have a system that, 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 uh, that eliminates capitalism in order to have a system that creates pathways of growth for everybody. You know, these don't have to be mutually, mutually exclusive conversations. And in fact, where capitalism thrives best, where capitalism is at its best, is a capitalism that promotes a larger societal economic growth. That people have to understand there's a cost to inequity. And that there's and there's a capitalistic cost. When you look at just the racial wealth divide, right? Uh, you know, again, then this is not me, this is Citigroup. Talks about how the racial, the racial gap that has existed has cost this country's economy, the GDP, 16 and a half trillion dollars. That's a cost, right? When we're looking at the fact that if we were to eliminate the racial wealth gap, we're talking about adding $2.3 trillion annually over the next 10 years. If we're talking about eliminating child poverty, there's a cost to child poverty. Child poverty right now in this country costs this country between 800 billion and 1.1 trillion dollars a year. That's how much we're paying for child poverty. And so my argument about how when when people say, well, why do you think this is important? Why should we, quote unquote, reinvent capitalism? Why should we do this? And then the answer is, if you're not going to do it to be self selfless, do it to be selfish. Right. (laughs) Because you will have a market impact on our GDP, a market impact on our cost, a market impact on our national margins. If we can decrease inequality, if we can make capitalism a place that works for everybody, all we're saying, you know, and and I think about it in this mechanism where it's like when people say, well, what, what, no. So how would you frame that out? My, My answer is this. I'm not saying that everyone needs to end up in the same spot. Right. But what I am saying is everyone needs a fair shot. Right. And that's the divide. That's what we don't have. We don't yet have a society where 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 ambition and opportunity actually meet each other. And we want to create a society and a framework where that is possible and that is real. And that can be done. That actually can be done if we can put a real focus on it. Yeah. You know, there's so many people that are that are, it seems like that people are getting it, but there's still so much pushback. Right. I mean, you talk about these things not being mutually exclusive. We talk about that all the time. We're like, you know, the answer to capitalism run amok is not socialism. It's actually a better form of capitalism, one that includes everyone and knocks off the off the rough, rough edges. Right. That's right. So that societal economic growth that that we all benefit from. Look, you talked about the, the, the I think the city, the 16 trillion, Morgan Stanley, you know, in my industry, in the venture capital industry, Morgan Stanley said, because of our, you know, this, this racial, you know, economic blind spot that there exists in the venture capital business, um, venture capital is leaving $4.4 trillion on the table every year, $4.4 trillion. And I wonder why are we getting pushback about this? What's your, you know, I, you know, I want to talk about the opportunity thing, but this this question always sticks with me. Why do you think? Um, I have my own ideas about this, but why do you think we're still getting pushback on some of these ideas 
when the benefits are so seem to be so clear. And I'm with you. I don't care that everyone ends up in the same spot. I just want to have the same opportunity. That's all we're saying. So why why do you think we're getting such such you know I, I call it the empire strikes back, right? The business roundtable says we should go to stakeholder capitalism. They said that at nine o'clock in the morning. I called my old partner in my hedge fund. I said, hey, how long do you think it'll be before the Wall Street Journal writes a rebuttal? He said, I don't know, day, two, five o'clock that night, the rebuttal came out. Why this is nonsense. But if you look at the data you and I are talking about, it makes, you know, it's 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 economic self-interest. Right. So why why the pushback? Well, I, I think I think it comes from two different reasons. Um, one is I, I think that the information and the data is not known or or shared from people. Uh, I, I think people need to understand that there is a real cost to this and that and that uh, that this is not this is not some form of a of a of a zero sum conversation. Uh, that, that, you know, frankly, when people say, well, if you, if, for example, if you include things like a racial equity lens into the work that you're doing, isn't that zero sum? And my honest answer is no, but you know, what is, you know, what is zero sum keep doing it the way that we're doing it now. That's zero sum. And, and I have data to reinforce that argument. Um, and so I think we need to make sure that we are being, as I always say, you know, kind of, you know, data driven and heart led in the work that we're doing. I think the second piece is, and part of the reason why people are, 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 are hesitant and unsure, is simply because people feel like in order for this person to gain, that means I must lose. Or in order for this person to gain, it means that my, my uh, evolution or growth or path, therefore, will get questioned. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not, I'm not, when, when, when we go and we say we must address these issues, this is not taking anything away from the hard work that a person put into it. You know, people work hard. I get it. And I'm not taking anything away from that. But what I am saying is we still do have a structure in society where we are asking people to work far too hard for no fundamental benefit. And that's unfair. You know, where, where, where people will, people will sacrifice for their children. People will sacrifice for their for their future. They'll sacrifice for future generations. It's one of actually one of those beautiful and honorable things that we have with our society. I also know this though, if people are sacrificing into a void, that that doesn't feel like sacrifice anymore. That just feels like suffering. And we still, unless we're going to be delivered about it, we are just asking people to suffer. And, and that, should, that should eat at our humanity. That should eat at us from a fundamental level when we're just asking people to sacrifice into a void in a very inhumane way. Yeah. And, you know, this is, you know, as I think, you know, I was a consultant to Raj Sisodia on when he wrote Conscious Capitalism with John Mackey and before that Firms of Endearment. And we're always talking about how we use capitalism as a tool to elevate our humanity. Right. Instead of crushing our humanity is what happens a, a lot right now, because if I get up and I'm working just for a paycheck, it goes back to the work, right? Passion and purpose. If I'm working for a paycheck and lots of times that paycheck doesn't support my, you know, even the basics of, of, of my life, right? That's suffering. But if you can turn that around, this is the other thing that, that we're sort of trying to focus on here, right? On the, on the podcast, if we can turn that around so that we are, um, we are framing business, 
in, in, in or the mindset that we're here to elevate all of us. We're going to elevate our humanity. We're going to we're going to do things to engage all of our stakeholders to get them passionate. Then they get up and they work every day with passion instead of suffering, right? And that's where we're we're trying to go. Uh, the passion versus the suffering. And I think that the other thing, you know, the whole zero sum game, right? I think you're right about that. And we are always talking about people telling, you know, telling entrepreneurs and CEOs and executives we're working with, take off the shareholder blinders. Because when you have them on, what you see is us versus them. Yes. If I give you more, then I'm going to get less. If I pay my employees more, shareholders will get less. And we say, look, Take off the shareholder blinders and find a way to increase the pie. We think about the idea of like a Costco versus a Walmart and they pay their employees more. Not only that, they give them more training. Why? They're like, you know, because if I'm going to pay someone 15 or 20 or $25 an hour, they better be a 15 or 20 or $25 employee, right? They better be able to create that sort of value. So not only is it right for me to pay them that, that, that wage, that living wage, but I also need to give them training and all the support they need to make sure that that, that capital I'm putting to work is being put to work efficiently. That's right. What most people think is, well, you can't train those people, so just don't pay them. Take the money, you know, let, let churn go. It's just amazing to me. So it's one of the reasons why I've been, you know, I've always been so enamored with the work that you that you've done over over your life and you know from you know from the from from the idea of giving you know, students a, a better way to engage you know before they go in their first year to um the robin hood talk about um how how you got involved with paul tudor jones and, and robin hood a little bit I, that's interesting to me yeah you know it's, uh, it's especially because of the just capital guys i'm you know i like those guys so <laughs> No, and let me tell you, man, Martin, Martin does great work, man. They do really, really yeah. good work. And, you know, it's funny. I remember when uh, when when I was first contacted uh, by the the person who was leading the search committee, the person who eventually became my board chair and, and, and also just became a good friend. Um, and he contacted me and he said, well, you know, I'd like to talk to you about being the CEO of Robinhood. And I told him, I was like, you know, I said, I don't think this is going to work. And I said, <laughs> for, for a couple of reasons. And I said, first, I was like, I live in Baltimore. Um, and I'm not planning on moving. My family likes it down here. So I don't see how this is going to work. The, the second piece, uh, was I said, you know, I have, uh, I enjoy what I'm doing now. As you said, I was running a running an organization, uh, a venture backed platform. That eventually we had a successful exit out of, um, that, that was helping first generation students make it to college and make it through college. So I enjoyed that work. And the third thing I was like, you do know, I've been critical of philanthropy. And pretty publicly critical plan to be. And his point was, he said, you know, we've it's all over the internet. We've seen it. So <laughs> we've done our diligence. <laughs> and I said, so why are we having this conversation? And he's like, because I think what you're saying, uh, I think a lot of what you're saying is correct. And one of the things that really intrigued me about Robinhood is Robinhood has always been a place that wanted to push the needle as to how philanthropy thought about itself. Um, about, you know, how do we use metrics? How about how do we come up with a new model of saying that all of our capital should go into the work while the board covers down on all operational expenses? Um, so it has been really innovative. But the thing that I wanted to push is I really wanted to test the question in people's minds about why do you think poverty exists in the first place? You know, poverty doesn't exist because, you know, philanthropy has done its job. Poverty exists because they're policies, 
that put people and keep people in poverty. So the thing I really wanted to push with Robinhood when we got there and I said, you know, I, I want to I want us push us to go faster, go harder, uh, to be more aggressive in this moment. And then beyond. And I think that was something that there was a uh, there was a, a measure of excitement about. And so when I think about the work we've done in four and a half years at Robinhood, where, you know, we built out a policy wing in the organization for the first time in the history of the organization, that we have a policy element that is strong and that is bold about you know, about being able to address the policies that are putting people in poverty and be able to help create policies that can create measures of economic mobility for people. The fact that we have a fund now that focuses exclusively on supporting organizations that are led by people of color. Because, you know, we see it both in private capital, but somehow philanthropy gets left all, let off the hook. Where, yes, we know about the less than 1% of all venture capital that goes to black entrepreneurs, et cetera, but philanthropy is not much better. Philanthropy, in the past 20 years, we've had a 400% increase in philanthropic giving. During that same time period, less than 10% have gone to organizations that are led by people of color. And so, so, so we have organizations, philanthropic organizations, change-building organizations that are led by people of color, that are led by African Americans, that are not getting the capital that they need to that they that they need and that they deserve in terms of their builds and their supports. And so, these are all things that we really move to push and incorporate. Working on a relief fund where we, in the past eight months, allocated north of, north of eighty million dollars in the support into really pushing towards supports for individuals and families uh, in this in their greatest times of need uh, you know and specifically focus on things like on things like cash assistance and so these are the type of elements that I think we're really proud of that we got done and also uh, you know a lot of credit to to Robin as an organization where uh, when we said we want to push harder and we want to be bold uh, they uh, they didn't just believe it um, but uh, but we've gotten some good stuff done together so, you know, that the whole the policy thing is is such so on point and right, you know, why asking that simple question, why do you think po poverty exists, right? Um, is so, I think, so impactful. You know, Brian Stevenson, the opposite of poverty isn't wealth. The opposite of poverty is justice, right? And justice has to do with policies as a way that we treat people, right? So it's all about this, this, and it, it all goes back again, I think, to the opportunity divide, you know? I've been on the Rise of the Rest bus with Steve Case, and I say this all the time, and it's like, I didn't make it up. Uh, you know, Steve told me, why are we doing this? Because there are smart, talented, educated, innovative people everywhere. There's just not opportunity everywhere. That's right. Hey. If you're digging listening to the remix, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. We're changing the world here, and we need you. Find us wherever you find your podcast. Okay, let's get back to the remix. So, so we see how policy really does matter. And, and just look at just recent history of, of the adjustment to the child tax credit. This is something that we lobbied and fought for hard in the adjustment to the American Relief Plan. And basically, the child tax credit is a policy that was pushed together to help to focus on this issue of uh, where basically you want to give a tax credit to people who are living in poverty, but who have children. Mm -hmm. To make sure that they can get the proper supports and it can be used towards everything from, you know, everything from diapers and formula to after school programming to transportation, whatever it is to be able to help that family. Right. Yeah. The challenge that we have was that the child tax credit is currently constituted before um, it had an it had an earn in. 
So you had to be making a certain amount in order to qualify for the child tax credit. The challenge was what it was then doing was it was leaving about 27 million children out because these are children who were too deep into poverty. And so I'm thinking to myself, so we have a poverty fighting initiative that is leaving 27 million children out because they're too deep into poverty. Yeah. Explain that one to me. And so we lobbied hard and pushed hard to get this adjustment in the child tax credit that not only increased the, the, the amount by, 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 uh, by a little bit, but yeah. also made it fully refundable. That adjustment alone has cut child poverty in this country almost by half in the stroke of a pen. That's what I'm talking about when we're talking about policy. So when people say poverty is a choice, my answer is it is a choice. But it's not the choice of the individual who's facing the weight of it. Right. It's our society's choice. Yeah, it's a choice that we made. It's right. a choice we made. It's a choice yeah. that we made about how much pain are we willing to tolerate in our neighbors. Yep. And so that's something that I, and, and I just, I do not believe, I do not, you know, ascribe to this idea that somehow being able to create platforms for other people somehow hurts my prospects. Right. In fact, if anything, the best way to protect your future is to make sure that people around you feel like their, their futures are protected as well. Because if someone does not care about their future, I can guarantee you this. If they don't care about their own future, they do not care about yours either. If there's no hope. There's no hope. I am willing to do anything. Right. If there's no hope, I'm willing to do anything. Right. Look, that's why. And I know I'm sure it happens to you, but it, and it happens to me and I'm OK with it. But. You know, part of this is, Jeff, you got to get into West Baltimore. You got to get into East Baltimore so these kids can see that there is something else that they could do. But, you know, and I'm like, you know, OK, I'm going to do that. You know why? Because that's the whole the issue about hope. Right. If there is no hope, then we get a lot of other, uh, uh, you know, other outcomes that, that we can't that we can't stand. And then we try to fight them with you know, with lousy policy that just locks people That's up right. or war on drugs or, you know, all that nonsense, right? It, it's so, you know, this is one of the things I've always loved about U.S. So it's like common sense, right? You know, say, people say common sense is not that common. But when you, when, you look, <laughs> turn, when you turn around and you look and say, yeah, we're trying to get kids out of poverty. So therefore, we're going to make their parents make a lot of money before we give them a break. Like, well, hold on a minute. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know? and, 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 and honestly, and, and the people who we're hearing that from, Jeff, and one thing that gets me is it's like these are smart people. Yeah, yeah. That's right. just being incredibly intellectually dishonest in the moment. Yep. You know, and, and again, you know, and I and I want people to know it's it's when we think about the prospects that we have and the intellectual capital that we are wasting by yeah. not taking this seriously. I'm thinking about the gifts that we have within so many of our urban and our rural and our suburban communities that are just that are the, these these unexercised options. Yeah. Right. That we repeatedly are losing what the potential upside value of them could be. Look, this is why this is why, you know, where our funds have been doing really well. First one is returning 44 percent IRR and three and a half multiple on capital. And people are like, well, how are you doing that? I'm like, you know what? I'm, I'm thinking about just what Wes said, that there's all these ideas, all this talent that's out there that people aren't paying attention to. I'm just going to pay attention to them and find a way to support them. And if you do that, you know, 
all of a sudden, magic starts to happen. People are like, oh, Jeff, you're a social impact fund. I'm like, well, sort of, but not really. But you can put me anywhere you want. Yes, 80% of the, the, the founders come into our next group of uh, companies in our, in our lab, in our accelerator, 80% minority mm. are female founders. Mm. And you, you, you laid the numbers out a minute ago. Less In 2020, I don't know if you knew this, $150 billion invested in venture capital. It went up from 2019 in the middle of a pandemic, which is crazy. Mm. But the amount that went into black founders went down from about 1% to 0.67%. And, you know, first of all, it's just insane. But And then I'm like, okay, well, we're going to do everything we can to raise as much money as possible because I know that there's brilliant ideas out there that are going to impact communities that are also going to make our LPs a lot of money. Right? That's right. So, That's right. you know, we're so we're in this for some some ways, this economic self-interest. Let me ask you um, uh, where, you know, we're in a moment, though, when it comes to sort of thinking about some of these things, economic and social justice. Right. Because of covid, because of, you know, um, George Floyd, which I, I say wasn't that much different than Freddie Gray. But I don't know because I didn't see Freddie Gray on television for yeah. eight minutes. That's right. right. So. Right. Um, but we're in a moment here um, that we all keep talking about. I'm a part of this group called Black VC, and we're trying to increase the number of African Americans in venture capital. What do you think? Where do you think we're going from here? If you had to, if you had to, you know, sort of look into your crystal ball, but you know, around this whole issue of, you know, social and economic justice. Yeah. Um, the honest question, Jeff. The honest answer for me is: is I don't yet know. Um, we've seen a lot of movement. I just don't know yet if it's just marking time. Yeah. Um, I, we've seen, you know, $3 billion of commitments that have come from the corporate side and 250 million of it actually actualized. Yeah. Um, we have seen a lot of momentum on people addressing the fact that we have massive inequities when it comes to policing in our neighborhoods. Uh, and we have not yet seen enough where we're seeing people who are understanding the holistic nature of systemic racism and how it exists and the why. Uh, and that it's not that if we address the policing, that's one aspect. Mm-hmm. It's just not everything. I mean, and, and you know, and, and listen, you, you brought up Freddie Gray. Freddie Gray is a perfect example where, um, you know, if you I mean, we we spent a great deal of time mourning Freddie Gray's death. We also should spend a great deal of time mourning his life. Yeah. I mean, this young man, he was born premature and underweight. He was born into deep poverty. His mother never made it to high school. She couldn't read or write. You know, uh, you know, he was he was he was his mother battled addiction for much of her life. He was exposed to heroin by the time he was born. When he moved out, when he finally gained enough weight to move into a a house, they moved into a housing project in West Baltimore that that home, along with 480 other homes, were cited in a civil lawsuit because of the endemic levels of lead inside of that home. So this is a young man who was born premature, underweight, exposed to heroin born into deep poverty and lead poisoned. And by that time in his life, he's two years old. 
And so if we aren't thinking about the other things that are creating these measures of disparity and these discrepancies within our society, if we aren't thinking about the lack of economic opportunity that people have and the lack of prospects that people have, then we could reform policing all you want. Yeah. <laughs> you have the best police yeah. force in the world. But it's still, it's not just that the police force was, it's not that the police force was the first system to fail Freddie Gray. It was just the last. Right. And that's the point that I, that I, I hope we as a larger society get to that fundamental understanding. And I don't think we've we fully, we fully gotten there just yet. You said this um, you know, much more eloquently than I have, but that's sort of the point that I've been trying to make, right? That when the, when the, when the unrest or the riots erupted, it was, you know, it was because that was the last straw, right? Freddie Gray's treatment by the police was the last straw, as you say, yes. the last system that failed him because the economic system had failed him, That's the justice right. system had failed him, the policy system had failed him, and then the police system failed him. And we said, okay, that's enough. That's right, enough. Right? Let's, let's, <laughs> no let's more. stop this. No more. Right? <laughs> right. Um, and that's sort of what we're trying, you know, and that's why, you know, people, you know, we're, we're, you know, we're always saying, look, let's go back to the root cause. Let's go back to the root cause. Yeah, we got to solve the policing thing. But well, we got to solve these other things first, right? And if we've solved these other things, you know, maybe the policing thing washes out on its own. I, I don't know. I'm not. A, I'm not an expert there. But yeah. that's so so well well said, my man. I, I really appreciate that. Um, you know, um, this is a. I wanted to, to get to this, but um, maybe you can talk about. It, maybe not, I don't know. This. Uh, uh, um, I was really happy. Uh, in this time where you say, you know, what about this moment? One of the things I was really happy about when I heard you were put on the board of Under Armour. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I was a, that was a, that was a, that was a big day for me. I yeah. like to hear that. I mean, I wish it was me. It was, but, <laughs> no, but, no, that, but that was a good day, man. I was excited to hear that. How's yeah. that been going? It's been, honestly, it's been going great. And, 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 you know, it's, it's actually a really important example uh, of what we're talking about, where uh, you know, it's it's important that that we don't let our corporate side both either a off the hook. Um, they have a very important influence, and and I think how they think about their 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 board composition, how they think about their C-suite composition, how they think about their pathways. This becomes fundamentally important. It's it's one of the reasons that I you know I led on an initiative called Ninety to Zero. Um, where we actually had our had our launch uh, back with um, you know with uh, with folks everyone from you know David Solomon from Goldman Sachs to Kevin yeah. Johnson from Starbucks to you know to to Princeton uh, you know to the University of Pennsylvania to be able to address the racial wealth gap that we have in our society and knowing that as we're addressing the racial wealth gap it is both about representation and participation about how are corporations thinking about their boards how are they thinking about their c-suites how are they thinking about everything from entry level and mid-level professionals within there but it's also how they're thinking about their spend how are they thinking mm -hmm. of who are their accountants who are their lawyers who are their who are their uh their janitorial services who are their auditors all the kind of stuff that we have to be able to make sure we're putting a real sense of of equity around spend and capital but i i really applaud uh you know both you know Kevin and the board uh, as they're thinking about and as they continue, you know, and trying to take moving to take a lead as they're thinking about, OK, uh, who is around the table matters. And this is not about how do we, you know, take a seat from X, Y or Z. Uh, 
but this is about can we build a bigger table? Right. We have to make sure that we're being more we're, we're being more inclusive in the conversations and the thoughts around it. So um so it was really important to me because you know I, I, you know again this idea that we have to talk about what is going to be done to capitalism is a fraught argument. It's what is going to be done with capitalism. Mm-hmm. What is going to be done not to corporations, but what's going to be done with corporations. They play an incredibly important role in our society and our societal growth. Uh, we just want to be thoughtful and, uh, and intentional about what should that role actually be. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, that's, that's, that's a, a, a great point. And, you know, I want to, I want to give a, a, a shout out also to Kevin, uh, as you did, because when you talked about, you know, 300 billion or whatever it is being, being pledged, and then, uh, uh, you know, a minuscule amount of that actually getting to work, um, you know, the, that's happening in the venture capital space. Yes. And here in Baltimore, when we launched our second fund, because we're right in the middle of this, all this too, right? That's how we provide economic opportunity to underrepresented minority black founders. Kevin was, a, you know, was one of the very first ones to come in and say, hey, this is important. That's I'm right. going to support you. I'm going to write a check for you, write a significant check. So Kevin um, is, is doing, you know, yeoman's work here in Baltimore, along with C. Bashadi, who supported us and guys from Brown Advisory and Capital Funding Group. So I think that locally anyway, we're seeing those sorts of organizations, those sorts of people step up because they understand, you know, or, or, or beginning to understand some of the things you and I are talking about. That's right. That's right. And, and doing it without the fanfare or the need for it, just doing right. it because it's an important thing to do. Right. Uh, That's absolutely. exactly right. So look, as we wrap up here, Wes, um, uh, two questions, sort of what happens next for you? What do you, what's, uh, what's on the, what's on the docket? Well, you know, the, the big thing for me on the docket is I, I'm like, you know, I know the issues I want to focus on. And that's many of the things that we've been talking about here. Uh, and I know to focus on it. And the next thing I want to do, I want I say I want a big problem with a big budget. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? I, yeah. I, I don't want a small problem with a big budget. I don't want a big problem with a small budget. Yeah. I want a big problem with a big budget. And, and I think we, we really are finding ourselves in a pretty, you know, unique moment where everything is and should be on the table uh, about how we think and rethink our, 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 our pathways for people where we have had people just go through a pretty, you know, for some people this past year was an inconvenience for some people this past year was actually a good year for some people this year was catastrophic and how we deal with the disparity and the fact that we're going to have long-term implications for the people that fall into the three buckets um, has got to be really thought out. And so, you know, I'm, I, I am actually, I'm, I'm actively exploring, uh, you know, entering into the governor's race for the state of Maryland. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, with that being, with that being not just an open race and us thinking we, and knowing we have a very real uh, path to not only win, but it really is the very real path to actually create a measure of generational change, uh, to build the right kind of coalitions, to enact the right kind of initiatives, to pull together the right kind of policies, to bring the right folks around the table, yourself included, right? I mean, so this is these are all things that I know I'm just thinking through that as uh, as we come off a very successful run at Robinhood. I mean, you know, in, yep. in the past four and a half years of Robinhood, we've increased reserves by six x. Robin used to have anywhere from from five to ten thousand donors a year. We're now up to about one hundred and ten thousand donors. 
Um, you know, we have we have launched new initiatives. We we added a policy wing. We put a real focus on addressing the racial wealth gap. I mean, like we're we're we we built out the relief fund and the third time only the third time in history of the organization. Um, we've got a lot that this organization is and should be proud of. Yeah. Uh, but we're really just now anxiously just thinking through what are the next big builds that we've got to get done in this moment. Yep. Well, look, that's uh, that's exciting news. Keep us posted on uh, on, yes, on your thinking on that. You know, you got the uh, got a lot of allies on this side of the microphone, and you know some of the other folks. I, you know, Martin Whitaker. I said, hey, I'm talking to West. He said, <laughs> the next president of the United States. I said, I, I said, I don't know if he's thinking that big, but you know, so Martin's gonna say you're shooting, you're not shooting high enough. I don't know. Maybe we need to talk Shoot to Martin. Shot. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, last thing, what you know, um, uh, um, and look, come back if you if you want. Well, Will. Back, once you make a decision, will. we'll talk more about that. I hey, will. Um, last thing, we like to ask this as a, as the question: What can we do for you? What can the community do for you? What's the sort of thing that's on your plate, that's on your mind, or one thing that keeps you up at night that we can, you know, if we can mobilize some folks, or you know, if, or somebody's listening to this can reach out. How can we be helpful? Yeah, I, I would say the biggest thing that I would ask people to do in this moment is don't forget about policy. Um, I I think that sometimes when we have leaders and whether they be business leaders, um, they think that the impact that they can make on our society uh, is like, okay, which organization can I support? What what nonprofit can I give to? Uh, Should I go give time to the Boys and Girls Club? My answer to that is this, yes. Do all that. Give time to the Boys and Girls Club. Give to that great, really great nonprofit. Find that thing that makes your heart beat a little bit faster and give your time and your energy and your resources towards it. And never stop asking why that problem exists in the first place. Mm -hmm. The reason you're supporting that organization that deals with people who are food insecure is because we have too many people who are food insecure. The reason you're giving to that nonprofit that folks on giving kids educational assets is because we have too many kids who are in school that are not preparing them for college or careers. Yep. Right. And so there's a quote that actually sits in my, that, that sits in my desk back at, back in uh, Robin Hood that said, uh, it's a quote from Dr. King and it said, philanthropy is commendable, but the philanthropist can never forget the economic injustice that makes philanthropy necessary. Yeah. We're dealing with economic injustice. And so if you want to give to your local nonprofit, if you want to do, absolutely you should. And, and you should give joyfully and give gleefully. And you should give your time, your resources, your energy, your thoughts, your insights. Give it all. However, do not forget policy because it's why many of the challenges exist in the first place. Can't say any better than that. Thanks, Wes. My main man, my friend, Wes Moore. My God. Thanks for joining. This is Capitalism Remix. We'll see you next week. Appreciate you deep, man. Thank you. Okay, everybody. I hope you all enjoyed that. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of Capitalism the Remix. Until then, keep the faith, keep grinding, keep building with purpose, be kind, and do the right thing. We out. We out.